Welcome back, everybody, to the last message in our series, Tomorrowland, where we've been talking about facing the future without fear. I hope you've been encouraged by it in all the chaos and craziness of this world. It is so good to know that God is ultimately in control and that he's bringing his plans to an end. We don't know when that end will be, but we know that in the end, God wins. And because we are his children, that means that we win too. In fact, the victory is already ours. But imagine hearing from somebody that Jesus has already returned and you have been left behind to face judgment. What would that do to you? Well, that is what happened to the believers living in Thessaloniki. Someone or some group informed them that Jesus had already returned and they had been left behind. Can you imagine the shock and the fear that must have gripped them? You know, those people, those false teachers, even had the audacity to say to them that they had a letter from the Apostle Paul and the other leaders stating the fact that Jesus had already returned. Well, when Paul heard about that, he immediately wrote the church to correct this false teaching. And so in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, he addresses it specifically because he wants to clarify some things. He wants to encourage them. And in so doing, Paul actually gives us some ideas, some interesting truth about the events that will take place before our Lord Jesus returns again. So it's really important for us to listen carefully to Paul's words. Now, dear brothers and sisters, let us clarify some things about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and how we will be gathered to meet him. Don't be so easily shaken or alarmed by those who say that the day of the Lord has already begun. Don't believe them, even if they claim to have had a spiritual vision, a revelation, or a letter supposedly from us. Don't be fooled by what they say, for that day will not come until there is a great rebellion against God and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the one who brings destruction. He will exalt himself and defy everything that people call God and every object of worship. He will even sit in the temple of God, claiming that he himself is God. Don't you remember that I told you about all this when I was with you? And you know what is holding him back, for he can be revealed only when his time comes. For this lawlessness is already at work secretly, and it will remain secret until the one who is holding it back steps out of the way. Then the man of lawlessness will be revealed. But the Lord Jesus will slay him with the breath of his mouth and destroy him by the splendor of his coming. This man will come to do the work of Satan with counterfeit power and signs and miracles. He will use every kind of evil deception to fool those on their way to destruction because they refuse to love and accept the truth that would save them. So God will cause them to be greatly deceived and they will believe these lies. Now, weren't those some exciting, intriguing, and mysterious words that Paul just spoke? How does that relate to you and me living in 2020? How does it affect our family, our, our friends, and the generations to come? What does it mean for us 
as a church and our future as well. Well, let's unpack what Paul says there. And I want you to focus with me on verse 7, a phrase in verse 7. It goes like this. For this lawlessness, Paul says, is already at work, he says, secretly or mysteriously. Now, what I want to do is I want to couple to this verse something that John wrote in one of his little letters called 1 John chapter 2 and verse 18. John wrote and he said, Dear children, the last hour is here. You have heard that the Antichrist is coming, look what he says, and already many such Antichrists have appeared. Now, I think at least at one point, John and Paul and many of the apostles thought Jesus may be coming in their lifetime. But as you read their later writings, it becomes kind of evident that they began to realize that perhaps Christ wasn't coming yet. But what they do make clear is that there is something that's been released in the world, something that is growing and will finally culminate in what John calls the Antichrist, or what Paul called in his passage of Scripture, the lawless one. So the question is, what is this lawlessness that we keep hearing about? What does it mean? And to answer that question, I want to look at two aspects of lawlessness. The first aspect I want us to look at is what I would call the power of lawlessness. Now, what I mean by the power of lawlessness is how it acts on a person, how it influences a person, its action or its activity against others. So what is lawlessness? Well, let me tell you what it is not, all right? It is not necessarily breaking the law. So for instance, imagine that you're driving down the highway and the speed limit says 55 miles an hour. And you think to yourself, I've got to get someplace in a hurry and so I'm going to break the law. I'm actually going to go 70 miles an hour, and I hope there are no radars out there, no police that are going to catch me because I am breaking the law. That is not what Paul means by lawlessness. So what does he mean by lawlessness? Well, imagine you're driving down the freeway, and you see a speed limit sign. It might say 35, it might say 55, it may say 70. And you look at it and you say or you think to yourself, who has the audacity to tell me how fast or how slow I can drive? I am going to drive as fast or as slow as I want. I am my own law. That's what Paul is talking about when he speaks about this whole idea of lawlessness. Now, to understand this better, I want us to take a trip back to the Garden of Eden, Genesis chapter 3. And we go there quite often, if you listen to me uh, at all. And uh, in the messages, I will frequently refer to the Garden because everything is tethered to it. All the rest of Scripture is tethered to what happened in Genesis chapter 3. And in fact, at the very end of the Bible, we end up back in the Garden again where God always wanted us to be and to be with us. So what I want to do is I want to sketch this out, and uh, you can join me if you like. So let's begin, obviously, with God, all right? And God creates the man and the woman. 
So God creates Adam, and then out of Adam, God creates Eve, all right? Puts them in the garden. And God also created all kinds of trees in the garden. And there's one tree in particular. It is called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God lays down a law. God says to Adam and Eve, all the other trees and fruit you can have. But you can't have the fruit from this tree. It belongs to me. In other words, Adam and Eve, I want you to leave morality with me. I want you to leave good and evil, the knowledge of that, with me. I just want you to partner with me in creation. Can you imagine that? And I want to bless you as my children. Don't take that fruit. Because if you do, you will die. Trust me. And everything seemed to be going really well. And then, of course, we know that the serpent shows up, right? And the serpent says to the woman and to the man, did God really say you can't take that fruit? Now, the enemy is so clever because when he makes that suggestion, did God really say he puts it in the mind of the woman and the man to judge God, to kind of stand over God, as it were, and speculate did God really speak the truth? And then the enemy said to them, listen, God is keeping you from your godness. That if you take that fruit, you will be just like God himself. Therefore, the enemy says, take it and eat it and live your own truth. Be the source of your own truth and you will ultimately be fulfilled. In other words, live out your feelings. So with that said, what we encounter now is the power of lawlessness, which is this. The power of lawlessness is its ability, right? That's the action, to act on our desires and lead us to think that our feelings are the truth. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, in the English Standard Version, it says that Eve looked at the fruit and saw that it was delightful and desirable to make one wise, to make one like God. It was all about the feelings. Now, all of, all of a sudden, feelings trump the truth. It's very interesting. C.S. Lewis wrote a book many years ago, The Abolition of Man. And in that book, he says something like this. He says, you know, for a long time in world history, everyone accepted that, that there was a moral framework over the universe. You kind of knew what was right, you knew what was wrong, basically speaking. But he said, in these times, Western intellectuals they now say that there is no great moral framework, no eternal truth. That what truth is, is your feelings. Now, he wrote that in 1943. So if Lewis had that sense in 1943, hey, in the year 2020, man, we've come a long way, baby, as that statement goes, right? We are living it all out now. It is all about our feelings. In fact, I was watching a uh, competitive reality TV show the other day, 
And the, the star of the show, the, 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 the guy that was kind of running everything, said to one of the competitor, competitors, live your own truth. And that is the mantra of our culture. You know, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., when he was in jail in Birmingham, wrote a letter. And in that letter, he talks about how there is an eternal law. And only laws that are derivatives of the eternal law, only those laws that fit in with God's eternal law are just laws. He says every other law that does not fit in with God's law is an unjust law. Like the idea that people who are created in the image of God somehow have a lesser value because of the color of their skin. Unjust law does not square up with the eternal law. And what I'm saying to you is that we are in a spiritual battle in our world. Paul tells us in Ephesians 6 and other writers that, you know, Satan is out there. He's waging this battle. Our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities that are out there working against God and God's people, attacking God's moral framework and God's truth. The power of lawlessness is to tease us with a sense that if it feels good, it's the truth. Now, I want to look at a second aspect of lawlessness. And that second aspect is what we'll call the nature of lawlessness. Now, what I mean by the nature of lawlessness is the is the character of lawlessness, the, the uh, attribute of, uh, attributes of lawlessness, the, the engine, the energy behind the action of it. And in order to discover what that is, I want us to look at a peculiar verse. It's found in verse 4. In verse 4, Paul says, he will, meaning the Antichrist, the lawless man, all right, or the man of lawlessness, he will exalt himself and defy everything that people call God and every object of worship. He will even sit in the temple of God claiming that he himself is God. Now, a lot of prophecy nerds, and I guess I'm a recovering prophecy nerd, all right, like to get focused on certain aspects like the temple and get into a debate. So is the, is the temple literally going to be rebuilt in Jerusalem? Others say, no, this is just symbolism. And then, and then you know, we get caught up and lost in ideas about who the Antichrist might be. Or was it historical? Has, was it Nero that was being referred to? Or is it a Nero-like character? Well, I believe the Antichrist is some kind of a being. I don't believe the Antichrist has arrived yet. I think there's been, been many types of the Antichrist, as John said. But listen carefully. The point in all of this is why the temple? Why does the Antichrist, whoever or whatever it is, all right? Why, do, why does the Antichrist want to make its seat of power in the temple? Well, ask yourself, what is in the temple? What's at the center or the core of the temple? Tim Keller says that temples all over the world, ancient and modern, have within their very core the essence of what is being worshipped, the, the essence of what that religion or belief is all about. It might be an idol, it might be an image, it might be a painting. But in God's tabernacle, which then became his temple, at the core of it, in what is called the Holy of Holies, 
was an object. Remember, God said, you make no image after me. I don't have an image. But there was an object. It was called the Ark of the Covenant. The manna was in there, the jar of manna, Aaron's rod, as well as the Ten Commandments. And on top of the Ark of the Covenant was what was called the mercy seat. It's, it's kind of like God's throne, so to speak. And it's in the Holy of Holies, separated from everything else. And only the high priest can go in there and once a year. And when the high priest goes in there, he takes the blood of an unblemished animal. And he sprinkles that blood all over the mercy seat. Making atonement for the sins of the nation. The sacrifice of one life, this animal, covers the sins of all of the people. And forgiveness is offered. Now that act that happened every year, and really all the sacrifices that the Israelites made, all were meant to point to an ultimate sacrifice that would be made. When God, as it were, would walk into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle the blood of his own son so that we could have mercy and forgiveness. Tom Holloway, a Catholic writer, has an interesting way of talking about what is the essence at the core of God's temple. He says there at the mercy seat, we find the essence of God's grace. We find the modus, motive of God's love. And he sums it up with this little statement. My life, God's life, my life for yours. You know, when Jesus died on the cross, it says that the veil in the temple was rent into the Holy of Holies was exposed. Why? Because the blood of Christ had covered all sin for all time. Forgiveness is now being offered. And any who come to Christ can receive this mercy and this grace, this forgiveness. My life for your life. Which raises the question, so what, what, what is it that the Antichrist, what is it the devil wants? Why does he want to put his throne at the place where heaven and earth touch each other, where God's kingdom, so to speak, is on this earth where God says my life for your life is because the devil's mantra is your life for my life or put it this way the nature of lawlessness is your life for mine I'll give you what you want but you will need to give me your soul when Satan goes into the garden and he approaches Adam and Eve and has his conversation with them, is it because he cares about them? Is it because he loves them? Is it because he's worried about them? Absolutely not. Why does he do what he does? Because he hates God, but he can't touch God. And because he can't touch God, he goes after that which is most precious to God, that which God loves the most, you and me. And he uses Adam and Eve. And he uses humanity to attack God. And he baits us with this whole idea, the power of lawlessness, that if we listen to him, we can be our own God's. 
and then he destroys us. Let's go back to the board, and let me see if I can sketch this out. I'm a, I'm a very visual learner, so I do this as much for myself as, as for you. But this is how I learn. So let's, let's try this, all right? So we go back to our board. If you want to draw with me, I'm going to draw a cross over here, right? And this represents two things. First, it represents what I'll call God's truth, all right? That is, when God created the tree, the cross kind of reminds us of a tree, in the garden, God said, the knowledge of good and evil belongs to me, doesn't belong to you. Listen to my truth. My truth is right. So we have God's truth, God's morality. But we also have, we also have God's grace. We have the essence of who God is. The cross represents this whole idea of my life, for yours. I'll give my life for you. Now, on the opposite side, draw another cross, but this cross, this cross belongs to Satan. So this is Satan's cross, and it represents his truth, which actually is a lie, all right? And his philosophy is your life for mine. Now, put yourself or humanity in the middle. We are all born in sin, the Bible tells us. It's not like we're born innocent and our environment corrupts us, as some people teach. No, we are all born sinful. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. I was conceived in sin, David says. We are all born sinful. And because we are all born sinful, we all are born with this sense of chaos in our life. Because sin leads to chaos. And when you sense chaos in your life, you look for a savior to rescue you out of that chaos. God speaks out in his truth to us. And he says, I have given my life for you. Come back to me. That's repentance. And live under my truth. Partner with me again. Join me to domesticate this world with the gospel of my son who gave his life for you. But Satan also shouts out at us. He says, no. He says, I'll let you keep your sin, your disobedience, and I'll help get rid of your chaos. But what you have to do is you have to give me your soul. And if you give me your soul, I will give you that peace you're looking for. Now, remember what I said last weekend. Jesus said, the peace that the world gives you is not the kind of peace I'm offering you. And I said that the peace that the world offers us will always cost you something. The peace that God gives us costs him everything. But if you want to believe the lie of the enemy, the lie that says 
trust your feelings. Your feelings are the truth. He'll kill you. He'll destroy you. Because Satan doesn't give a rip about you and he can make sin seem so delightful and seem so good and he can promise us that if we'll just bow to him, he'll give us what we want. He's not going to deliver on that promise. Look at every system in the world of, of rule and govern, government. Think about fascism. Think about communism. Think about capitalism. Think about all the isms. They promise prosperity. They promise peace. They promise control to everyone. But in the end, they murder so many people. They kill so many people. Even democracy, which I'm all for, cannot hold up over time very long because human beings are sinful and they will use it to control and corrupt. And we know, we know that wickedness destroys people. We know that people use people for their own end. If you don't believe me, think about what's happening all around us right now. Not just right now, but in the last several decades. We're being played by the enemy. So that the enemy can use us for his own purposes. And as we mentioned last weekend, that's hell. That's a terrible way to live in subservience to Satan, because he'll destroy you. You know, it's an interesting passage of Scripture when we go back to our text. Listen to what Paul writes. He says, this man, the Antichrist, will come to do the work of Satan with counterfeit power and signs and miracles. He will use every kind of evil deception to fool those on their way to destruction. Because they refuse to love and accept the truth that would save them. Just saw me sketch it out. So God will cause them to be greatly deceived. In other words, God just, like it says in Romans, he just gives them over. That's what it means when, when it says God causes them to be, be deceived. He just says, fine, if that's the way you want to go, I will let you go. And they will believe these lies. Oh my goodness, how many people are believing the lies today, folks? How many people in our world are believing the lies that are going to destroy their lives? Then they will be condemned for enjoying evil. Hey, I'll let you have fun with your sin. That's what the enemy says. But look what happens. They'll be condemned for enjoying evil rather than believing the truth. Hard to hear those words. I know it is. I've been thinking to myself, man, I've been a real downer in this series, right? But we've got to face reality, not bury our heads in the sand and act like, well, everything's going to turn out okay. Look at history. See what's happening. But I, I, want, to get, I want to get to a couple of questions that I know that you're, you're thinking, you're asking. Like, for instance, why? Why does God, you know, why doesn't God do something about this? Or, or, or why is it taking so long for him to return? Let's go to the passage of Scripture again. Pick it up at verse 3. Paul says, Don't let anyone deceive you in any way. For that day will not come, that is the coming of Jesus, 
until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, is revealed. The man doomed to destruction. He goes on, he says, and now you know what is holding him back. So he may be revealed at the proper time. The secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now holds it back will continue to do so till he is taken out of the way, and then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. And so the question is, who is it that is holding back the tide of evil? Who is it that's holding back the emergence of the Antichrist? And so you've got people who say, well, it's the Holy Spirit. You've got people who say, it's Michael the Archangel. You've got people who say, no, it's the gospel. The way I answer this, the way I look at it, and, and I find agreement with N.T. Wright and Grant Osborne, I believe it's just God's hand that's holding back the enemy. And when God withdraws his hand, like, you know, from a dam, and he lets go and the water breaks, that's when literally all hell will break loose. But now God restrains it. Why does God restrain it? Why has he been restraining it for so long? Peter says, because he's willing that none should perish, but all should come to repentance. He's a God of mercy. But as time goes on and evil intensifies and increases, globally speaking, there comes a point in time where it's as though nobody cares about the truth. Nobody cares about God anymore. And so Jesus said in the Olivet Discourse, when the Son of Man returns, will he find any who are faithful? And if God had not shortened those days, Jesus says, even the elect would be deceived if that was possible. And it's not. That's how intense it's going to be. You know, God waited a long time before he sent his son the first time. Have you ever thought about that? I mean, thousands of years from when he made the promise to when Jesus finally arrived. But as it says in Galatians 4, at the right time, God sent his son born under the law, born unto a woman. Just as I know that happened, I know when God's ready, he's going to send his son. But before his son comes, Paul makes it pretty clear here, the Antichrist will appear because God will have removed his hand because it's now time. Could that be soon? I don't know. None of us know. None of us are sure. But look what the passage goes on and says. As for us, we can't help but thank God for you, dear brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord. We are always thankful that God chose you to be among the first to experience salvation, a salvation that came through the Spirit who makes you holy through your belief in the truth. He called you to salvation when we told you the good news. Now you can share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. With all these things in mind, dear brothers and sisters, watch this. Stand firm and keep a strong grip on the teachings we have placed in, uh, placed, passed on to you both in person and by letter. In other words, stand firm and, and get a strong grip on the truth. If you read that passage carefully, it's all about the truth. There are those who forsake the truth and are fooled by the evil one and are taken to destruction. And there are those who stand firm and grip the truth. 
and they experience eternal life and hope even in the midst of chaos. In fact, if you look at the passage carefully, Paul's really saying three things to them that I've summarized with this big idea. Here it is. By pursuing Christ's mission and keeping a strong stand and a sure grip on the truth, we can avoid the power and nature of lawlessness. That's what this is all about. Paul's saying you don't have to be overcome by lawlessness. But by staying on mission with Christ, which you've been saved for, and he, he lets the, the Thessalonians know that in the first and the second letter. He brags about how they, how they talk about their faith, how they share their faith. He says, by pursuing Christ's mission and keeping a strong stand and a sure grip on the truth, you can avoid the power that your feelings are the truth and the nature being deceived your life from mine. You can not only avoid it, but you can have victory in it. But what does it mean? It means I've got to stay focused on the mission that Christ has given me to tell people here, near, and far about God's love. About the essence of what God has said, my life for yours. There's no greater privilege than to tell somebody about who Jesus is and what he's done for them. And that's what we have to stay focused on continuously as believers. That's our business. That's our job. That's why we've been left here. And then stand firm and grip the truth. You know, I uh, was a wrestler in high school and a little while in college, and then I practiced martial arts for a while. And, you know, the thing they teach you is you've got to get a good, you got to get a good stance. You got to square up with whatever you're standing on. Get your legs you know, spread the right distance with your shoulders and, and get yourself anchored so you can't get pushed off balance because it's, it's all about being grounded. It's all about being balanced. And we all know from other athletics that, you know, a grip is important. Doing chin-ups, a grip, all right? Or if somebody's rescuing you off, off the cliff, right? You grip, you hang on to them for dear life. But here's what's so awesome with God. He's given us truth to stand on. I've just got to rest my life. I've got to anchor my life to God's truth, to God's salvation, to what God has done for me. And you know what? As much as I grip the truth, the truth grips me. And I don't have to necessarily worry about straining to hang on. I just need to let God hang on to me. And faith is the grip. Trusting him in these days for your life. For those of you who are parents who are raising your kids, your grandkids, listen carefully to me. It is so important that you teach them the truth, that you walk and talk with them about the truth, that they see you living out the truth. Because they're hearing 24 hours a day that the truth is whatever they feel. That's deception by the evil one. I want to close by sharing something from one of my favorite theologians, Linus. You thought I would say Tim Keller or N.T. Wright, didn't you? No, Linus. There's this cartoon strip where Linus is standing with his blanket and Lucy is next to him, and of course she's in charge. And they're looking out this huge window pane in their family room, 
And it's raining sheets of rain outside. They can barely see the trees the distance. And Lucy sighs and she says, if it just keeps raining like this, Linus, the whole earth is going to be flooded. And Linus, the theologian, responds and he says, nope, it'll never happen. It's impossible. You see, in Genesis chapter 9, verses 7 through 17, God said he would never flood the earth again and he put a rainbow in the sky so we could count on his promise. And Lucy says, Phew, you've just taken a huge load off my mind. And immediately, Linus says, that's what sound theology will do to you. It'll take a load off your mind. That's what the truth, that's what sound theology, that's the effect it has on you. When you know the truth, when you anchor the truth, though everybody else is in chaos and everybody else is panicked and fearful and worried, you know, you know that God's in control. You know that someday Jesus will come. And you know that if you die before he comes, you'll be with him eternally. Let's pray. Father God, we just thank you so much. We thank you so much that in this chaotic, crazy world we live in, that God, we can turn deaf ears to the lies of the enemy who wants to convince us, oh God, that we are our own truth, who wants to convince us to live by our feelings. God, it only destroys our life. We see lies being destroyed all around us. God, we thank you that it was your life for our lives, the nature of your grace and your love. God, help us not to be pawns in the hands of the evil one. Help us not to sell our souls, oh God, so we can live what, the way we want. Help us to be firm, oh God, in the truth and focused on our mission. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, next weekend we start a brand new series, Endurance, Fuel for Life. We're going to talk about the kind of fuel that we need to have a good race, so to speak. And I've got three items I want to talk to you about, all right? Three ways to give you energy to endure the days we're living in. And you don't want to miss those. God bless you.